Hi, and welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris O'Fault, Deputy Editor of Film and TV Craft at IndieWire, and my guest today is the director of No Time to Die, which of course is the final Daniel Craig installment in the James Bond series, Kerry Fukunaga, and his amazing cinematographer, Linus Sangren. And support for this podcast and the following message comes from MGM Studios and United Artists Releasing's Sierra No, from director Joe Wright, the award-winning director of Pride and Prejudice, Atonement, and Darkest Hour, comes this lush musical retelling of the timeless tale of Sierra de Bergerac against a Baroque cityscape. Sierra No is a symphony of romance and beauty that bellies a heartbreaking love triangle. Starring Peter Dinklage, Haley Bennett, and Kelvin Harrison Jr., critics are calling Sierra one of the best films of the year. It's for your consideration in all categories, including Best Picture. It opens in select cities in January and then everywhere February 4th. You know, Carrie, I, I'm wondering, Linus in and of himself is a very talented cinematographer, so that so that could be the answer uh, to my first question. But uh, I'm wondering if reaching for him uh, for your Bond movie was also a window into how you were thinking about visually approaching this uh, franchise. Kind of like if you pick me because you think that we could make a better film together. <laughs> <laughs> Linus makes pretty pictures. I want to work with him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the truth is, you know, it's it's uh, Linus' work speaks for himself. So it was, it was uh, you know, when I especially First Man had just come out, which I think had a lot of elements. Uh, I think I was looking for in this Bond. Uh, sort of packed up in that that film as well, and um, you know, seeing what he did with the different formats they shot on, and um, you know how ambitious the, the scale of that project was, and literally going to the moon and back, um, you know, was pretty inspiring for what I think we were trying to do in this Bond as well, which was try to make it you know as beautiful as possible, but also have a, a realism, a, a sense of realism attached to it that would add to the danger and the tension of the whole story. One thing I always think about when I think about his work is there is something raw and visceral, but yet classically beautiful, right? In, in that sense of, it feels to me like maybe in thinking about some of your action, there is some a sense of movement, a little bit, maybe a little bit rawer than some of the things that we're, um, we're used to with this franchise. Yeah, I think we've seen kind of, in the four previous films with Daniel, um, I think we saw some pretty raw elements, even in the casino. I mean, casino was a pretty big departure I would say probably the biggest change in any of the sort of iteration changes uh, in the previous Bond films. I can name a number of scenes in that film, whether it's the opening sort of parkour scene all the way down to, you know, that scene with the Algerian knot, you know, when, when Daniel Craig's tied up naked in a chair, uh, where the brutality feels very visceral, right? Everything's personal, I think, for him. So I think, um, you know, this film, I guess, would be more akin to that, that first chapter than maybe the other ones but you know i think there's a there's there's an interesting kind of mix that comes in and maybe that's because of the different directors maybe it's because of the times changing but there's an interesting mix you know styles in uh between casino to quantum to skyfall to to specter and i think even within uh no time to die there's even a mixture of you know there's some genre bending moments and there's moments when we're playing more classical and more sort of you know, studio, uh, uh, you know, dollies and cranes and stuff, and other times when we're more handheld and uh, feels much more sort of uh, documentary cinema verite. And it's fun. It's fun to be able to kind of, you know, expand the bag of what's possible, you know, in one film. It seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I mean, I, it is a franchise. There are certain genre expectations. I'm sure there's concerns about, you know, the Daniel Craig character, but it seems visually 
there really isn't the handcuffs that there are on other filmmakers and other franchises in that sense that it seems as if going for it um, is is something that's almost encouraged from a filmmaking standpoint with, with this franchise. Am I wrong? I think everyone behind uh, the scenes, producers included, um, wanted to make a film that is very much as expressive as possible out of um, you know what the script tells us. And and anytime you make a film, I think you need to be uh, listening to the, what the script needs. And as you said, it's like it 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 does um, it does sort of bend a little bit between different genres. You have both humor and you have sort of visceral hard action and suspense. And in this case as well, there's a lot of um, intimate emotional scenes. And I think uh, that's very much what I loved with, um, um, you know, Carrie's sort of idea about the film uh, was to really, uh, you know, tell the story in the, the best possible way. And, and both of us, I think, think of things that um, you can change the language depending on what would fit a scene better. So if, if, if it is, um, um, th there is sort of room in, in the script for uh, telling the story very classically. And, and I think we're both kind of inspired by classic cinema, whatever, um, film could be um, telling a story more um, in, in a better way. So I think we, we, we go um, sort of, um, we, we follow sort of the emotions of the story with the visual language. So um, sometimes it's very still, sometimes it's uh, very fast. And, um, and same goes with sort of uh, lighting and mood and colors as well, that we just felt like we wanted to be expressive, you know. Um, but uh, there, there was no restrictions, no like, uh, I don't think there's no genre restrictions. It's more like, what does this film need? Like, <laughs> how can we be bold and, and expressive with it? And that definitely free to imagine. It also feels like Linus, um, I was rewatching it last night, that um, obviously a movie like this does have to have a certain amount of editing, uh, especially with the, the action. But it does feel like in particular with some of the action, there's an attempt here to do more within shots. Uh, there's an incredible efficiency here. Um, within shots and storytelling, but also uh, it feels to me like that was something in terms of coverage. And I don't know if this is something you and Carrie talked about, but trying to capture things within one shot and getting different story beats within one shot when, when possible. Is that, was that something that was discussed? Absolutely. I mean, I remember, you know, this is the first time I've ever had to work with second unit. And, and part of that, you're, you're sort of forced to define a style, almost like a dogma prior to another team going out and working so that um, the vision's being maintained by that other team. And very early on, we would have these discussions about not wanting to construct action scenes by just putting down 10 cameras and seeing what came together in the end, but really be purposeful about how each shot led to the next shot. And there was a chronology, an established, an attempt to establish chronology and how the shots work together so that whether it's through a pan or a zoom or the tracking shot, you know, either builds upon the tension or you know, there's new information revealed in part of that shot. And that's not to say that, you know, we don't cut away to things, but uh, you attempt as much as possible to tell a story through a single shot. That's something that I also uh, always love in films is obviously to tell the, the story with the camera. And uh, I remember I watched like um, about Lucci films, um, like Spider Stratagem and stuff like that uh, um, from back in the days and uh, who sort of in a genius way can 
uh, have, have a, a mid shot of a person come into a room and you pan to the right and it becomes a group shot. And it's sort of also that classic storytelling that is um, could be done uh, also in quick uh, versions and, and for um, um, action sequences and so on as well. And, and I know Kerry loves that stuff and I thought it was... Um, uh, beautiful to see how, you know, sometimes when you shoot a film, you, you intend those things or you have crane shots, or you have like a, a long move or a long Steadicam shot or something that you hope will, will make it in the film. And um, when I saw the cut from uh, Gary on the film, it's, uh, he, he very much stuck to uh, the intention we had on set while we were shooting. So, um, which shows like Carrie is such a confident um, director as we were shooting. You know, we didn't we didn't shoot lots of coverage. We always usually shot like one camera at a time. And there's scenes where we had to have like five cameras for there was to a, make there sure. Was, there were sometimes requests that we use more cameras. <laughs> yeah, as well. It was like, okay, but we need you know like we're doing this stunt. We need like ten cameras. <laughs> it's like okay, let's have it. But I mean, you end up using one shot of the motorcycle stunt. It's not like cut to like, the other four cameras. So I know which shot I want to use, and the other ones there just in case. So, but a lot of times I think the perfect example is like in in um, in the lab in the beginning, like how the pr preciseness of sort of the movements there is um, it's just like. We shot it, you know, the, the order of them as well is like really what you intended. So, you know, how much using the lab one as an example, I, I mean, obviously, to as Carrie was saying, that that's something where, you know, the overall philosophy is something in the language is something that has to be decided on well ahead of time. But how much room is left um, to get there in the blocking and react to that? You know, I'm, I'm sure there's a plan, but how much of this is also kind of getting everybody there and, 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 and blocking it and then kind of adjusting and reacting to that. There's, there's definitely that. I mean, like, uh, if you notice in the lab, Valdo's character gets a phone call and then while he's listening to what Safin's telling to them, we jump back out to these guys that are, are broken into the lab and we see them kind of frozen for a second before they go into action as if they're waiting for a, you know, a cue. And uh, that was something that came out of uh, a reset we were doing and I saw all these guys, and a lot of these guys are trained ex-military. A lot of them are like you know former special forces um, operatives. So they have they actually have military training. And what was really impressive is like between takes, they would literally just be still as death, waiting for that next call to action. And I thought it was so creepy that I was like, oh, we should have that within the shot because the camera's going back to one, right? And I saw all of them; they're almost like mannequins. Yeah. And it was really creepy. I'm like, oh, like, uh, Lee Morrison, our stunt coordinator. I was like, hey, Lee, can we? Um, have them do that in the shot so they don't, the camera's already moving but they're not moving yet and then wait until like they're kind of a bunch of them in the shot before they go to, into action. So that's an example of a shot yeah. that changed, you know, based on what was happening on set. I think it's a very dynamic process. It's like some shots are actually already in the script described, you know, like um, I think you described that, sh the, 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 the sort of in the opening sequence where we're uh, pushing out through the window to find the the villain heading towards the house in in Norway, I think that was in the script. But um, so so it could be like that, right? It could be like already described in the script. If Carrie's thought of it already as an interesting way to reveal a, a villain there, for example, or him outside the window was probably there too uh, in the script. But <clears throat> then you start to design the locations and. It's really not until you have the locations, there's no point of like uh, having two detailed storyboards. I think that's that's always defeating the the, the sort of the, the flow of the, the, the final um, film because 
if you if you design in your head, uh, uh, fantasize about shots, then then you you make locate create locations that are or sets that are different from what you what you need for those boards. And so a lot of I think a lot of the creation of the shots happens as you go scout them or go like block you sort of pre-block a little bit like ideas of where things are and what what happens and then I think the only ones that are sort of like written in the screenplay are the ones that I know are going to cost more money. <laughs> so they got to go in there just so it costs more money in the sense that like you know like there are multiple departments that have to get in sync to achieve the shot. So uh, the shot inside the house uh, in, in Norway, or actually, is, which is a pairing with the shot outside the house in Norway, where the camera is sort of pushing forward, like on the techno crane, uh, past you know our our figure in the white snowsuit, which is similar to the shot then inside the house, which pushes past the girl, you know, as it pushes to the window, revealing the guy in the snowsuit. The, these kind of these kind of shots, I know, are going to be a little more technically difficult to pull off because we need specialty equipment. So then they have to go in the screenplay. And, and, you know, I might have shots in my head that are complicated, but I don't put in the screenplay because I know we can just achieve it on the day, you know, with, with my, you know, regular crew and, you know, with Dolly and whatever we have. But those ones sort of require a bit of, like, flagging ahead of time. This might be tricky. Uh, we had to get a technocrane up on the yeah, we had second floor in Well, we had to augment the set, right? Because we had to yeah. augment the position. We literally plant, we built that house on this lake in Norway, and we had to arrange the orientation of the house on two different axes because we had that shot where we wanted to see into the woods, but it had, he had to be walking across this kind of snowy plain towards the edge of the forest. So we aligned the house, remember, on location, yeah, right. but then the other window had to look out on the lake from the other side. So this, right. this kind of like particular kind of orientation needed to have. That's actually why we had to build a house. We were scouting houses in Norway, um, but we couldn't find one that fit both requirements. We needed sort of a slopey hill uh, that uh, the villain could come from so that we could look down the hill and see a house and the house should be by a lake in such a way like Kerry described so that we could in one way see out over the frozen lake and the other way see where the villain came from and 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 so we built that house in in um, in London and shipped it to uh, Norway. Norway right and, and we, we actually yeah. built it on the lake too so when the lake started to melt the house started to sink so we, had, we were running out of time but that, yeah. the reason we had that, the house is special too is that the, the wall uh, on the far side from that window had to be wildable so they could build a platform to put the technocrane on. So we could get in and do that shot with yeah. the technocrane and the, and, and the, the, we needed a, speci- a, a very wide uh, like camera head to fit the IMAX camera in a right. matrix mode on top, <laughs> like in yeah. front of the, <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was a little bit tricky. We, we, I think throughout the film, we have a lot of like quite ambitious um, solutions. Um, Similar, we have, we have a lot of shots that are kind of like that. They, they seem pretty st- straightforward, and I mean that literally. They are literally straightforward shots, like just shots yeah. that move straightforward, but are quite difficult to pull off. We had the one coming into uh, Matera as well, where the camera is following behind the DB5, right, at speed. And the DB5, and we're going through a tunnel, a cave, and the DB5 will turn off camera or turn away, and the camera will continue to move forward and then end up over a valley that's a st- an establisher of um, Matera. So it starts as sort of what appears to be a traditional sort of follow of a car and becomes an establisher of a location. And we mold over a bunch of different ways to accomplish that shot, in- including drones, helicopters, helicopters with cables, with a what do you call the, the thing you used on the Lassie Hoster movie? Yeah, yeah, that is like a, a, a tow, uh, what do you call it, like a towing rig from the helicopter. Um, 
Uh, Klaus can. Klaus can. We built the cave as well because there is no cave in Matera. So. It was one of those things where it's like, where's the best, where's the most picturesque uh, establisher of Matera? And then we found that location, but we couldn't like pull off the shot unless we, unless we created a tunnel right there where, where we could enter the town. And, and so we had to build a tunnel. And then in order to see the town proper, we needed to sort of get the camera out over the ledge a little bit. And, um, <clears throat> and doing so um, could only happen with uh, either a drone or something, but it was IMAX and we couldn't fly an IMAX on a drone. So, so we had to um, uh, build, use a long crane, right? If, uh, we had like the 42 foot um, hydroscope on an on a, on a, on a insert truck, but we built the long tunnel. It was like 100 meter, like 300 feet tunnel. And we did some pretty cool stuff on location. Carrie, I'm wondering, you know, this is, in that sense of when you're writing this, and you know, one thing about this is, and we're kind of talking about this, is you're going from different locations, and each one of those locations, it seems as if there was a conscious effort to to have a different look, a different different feel, a different color. As you're writing this, I know you're thinking story, but is there also this element of like, okay, we're going to go to these different locations and the different feels of like a of you know, got an ice cabin, we've got Cuba, we've got these. Is there an element there of also thinking is telling this in terms of landscape and in different looks as you gave each of these sequences? I mean, Linus came on board, I think, before even the script was done. So <laughs> yeah. um, it was kind of, it kind of happened, happened simultaneously. You had, you had a, that, that was one of your sort of key objectives of the film, though, was to, to that we, we were going to try to find a way to sort of uh, make the world as expansive as possible and, and as different as possible. You know, sometimes with production design, in, in tandem with production design and then Linus's sort of, uh, sort of uh, mood books, you know, th those can also inspire the screenplay too, you know, by location or feel. It gives you a sense of kind of a, almost like an architectural view of what the story could be by seeing kind of how these different worlds or places could come together and how the different feels would mix together. I, I think of it kind of like a, you know, like a tasting course of food, if you will, and like you have these different flavors that kind of come in that give you a whole, a whole ride, which not only accentuate the narrative, but also might drive the narrative sometimes because those, those, the tone gives you a feeling. And that, if you kind of know more the feelings you want from a story before you know all the elements that are making up that story, it's where imagery can help drive it and, and, and production design in the sense of choosing locations that are inspiring, that, that help sort of, uh, 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 add to or um, even um, is the inspiration for a part of the story. Linus, off that, one of my favorite examples of this is is the uh, the whole Cuba sequence, which has such a distinct look and use of light in, in those night scenes. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that in terms of not just the choices you made, but also in that sense of like what we're talking about here and that, you know, this is, this is, this is a pretty sizable uh, course on the tasting menu and it, it comes nice and early. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that scene. One of the key obje objectives in, in, um, in, in the sort of look of the film is, <clears throat> like we discussed, that we found changes between um, the, the various locations and scenes to sort of distinct Jamaica from Cuba or, or Italy from Jamaica and so on. And, and and that if the the, the whole film should feel um, like an like an adventurous journey, right? That you go to places that exist, they should feel realistic, but um, they are also perhaps in the perfect moment for being more uh, exotic. 
And so <clears throat> Jamaica was pretty good that we could be like in, in this sunny, lush. So he's out fishing, he comes back with his boat. It's sort of like a lush, sunny, uh, tropical warmth. But um, he actually, then, then he, goes, he goes into night, right? So then it goes into uh, dawn and morning uh, in order to sort of separate. And then he sails over to Cuba in the daytime and he arrives at dusk. And, um, and, and there's a party there, right? So that whole sequence, you know, what, what I think, like, I, I tend to not like so much to uh, use sort of artificial style uh, colors, but rather like actually use colors that normally exist. So I, I like to work with like, uh, for a night like Cuba, that you work with sort of the real color temperatures that could exist, you know, which is like you could either have sodium vapor streetlights at night or you could have like mercury vapor streetlights at night. And in this case, uh, the combination of um, sort of mercury vapor or cool white fluorescent tubes um, uh, in the mix of sort of gold and warm <coughs> practicals uh, was, was, was sort of what, what Cuba, the Cuba sequence is based on as a, as a look, which is sort of seducive and, and a little bit exotic. But all that location, you know, that whole um, sequence is built. Um, it's a, it's part. He arrives in uh, in Cuba. Um, that one we shot in Jamaica, in the harbor in uh, Sant Antonio, uh, in um, the the Cuba sort of party and and the shootouts and all that stuff. That's shot in London in Pinewood and built by Mark Tillisley. Um, and, and but it's it sort of copies of real buildings in, in Cuba, or inspired by real buildings in Santiago de Cuba. And, and the colors of those, um, um, the colors that we use is sort of what I would consider like realistic colors, we, but we obviously lit it. And, um, and uh, we also created a neon sign that was kind of green that would uh, affect the entire uh, exterior there as well. But it, it's all sort of really based on, you know, the different emotions throughout the film, what, where we want to be with things. So, in, for example, in, in, um, in the beginning when it's uh, very suspenseful and a very dark, um, emotionally dark memory for Madeleine, we, we treated that as we could be very cold and, and, um, and monochromatic uh, to sort of enhance the emotions of that scene. And then you cut to a very strong contrast to something very extremely romantic in the water of uh, Italy. Uh, where uh, Madeline is lying and saying that everything is fine, but it's obviously not. Her memory is bad, and and then you 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 let Matera be a very romantic, picturesque, romantic sunset city, getting into dusk, and a super romantic uh, evening in the hotel room, with purples and yellow colors, and then <clears throat> in the morning it's also kind of romantic, but then suddenly it becomes a very brutal uh, city, being. Um, sunny and hard and contrasty uh, and bright, you know? So we always did that throughout the whole film, um, worked with the emotions of the story. And where the end of the film is uh, one long sunset, you know, starts in the late afternoon, but it ends as a sunset, uh, which is also deliberate. So we always sort of thought of it that way. You have a language on the film that's, I think that's always important that you, you sort of motivate your choices um, uh, in the story and the script. Carrie, I have to imagine, um, of what Linus just said, yes, sometimes realistic sources, but also really leaning into color. And I imagine that's part of this 
in terms of even the emotion and, and getting him involved before a script is even locked is, is thinking about these things in terms of a emotion and in terms of a color and, and, and kind of going bold with that, right? Yeah, but it's, it's one of those things where, I mean, I, if, if you read a book of, about lighting, it usually says like, you should color correct everything to uh, be color balanced uh, so that the inside you light with the blue gel on tungsten lights to, to match the daylight that comes through the windows, right? But um, that's not how reality works. That's like how you do it if you actually um, do an artificial lighting. But um, the realistic lighting is actually exactly opposite. That's like full of different colors. And um, I love that. I, I feel like you can still be painterly with it. You could like use it as if you are uh, painting like, uh, you know, uh, uh, romanticism paintings. Uh, which, by the way, has a lot of those sort of contrasting colors. Uh, so it's something there, right? It's like you use the reality, but uh, Bond is also all about like escapism and getting on these exotic journeys. And um, you, you can enhance. I think what we did is like um, you, you heighten reality. You know, you, you take reality, but you heighten it. Linus is also Swedish. And as you know, Swedish, Sweden has a blue and yellow flag. And if, if you look at Bond, I don't know if he was doing this on purpose, but there's a lot of blue and yellow being used around the entire movie. I suspect he was trying so to get his- It's pink and yellow though, I like pink too. Like the lab, if you go to the lab, <laughs> you know, we have these, like, it's like, it's blue and yellow. I know, but that was your choice. Because in the morning, in the, in the first lab we go to, we have these Astera tubes, right? Which could go any color. And we were just thinking like, which color should we go to? Because we just came from uh, Matera and then we came from the title sequence and then, uh, we open up at a, at a purple sort of a, a dusk scene outside the skyscraper and they enter and the, we had already decided the tubes were cool white in there, like cyan. Right. I think Linus and I both love color and I think we also really love color as shot on film, which is reacts differently than film, the, the color shot on digital, which you often have to spend a lot of time in post trying to get back to a a kind of color that feels like it's an organically light exposed color versus coming from a digital chip. And, um, um, you know, part of that, there's a retro aspect to that too. Like, um, you know, I've always loved early Technicolor films and how those colors are rendered and they're not quite the same as reality. It's definitely heightened reality, which fits the Bond world. But even say like in the title sequence, some of the er earlier drafts of the title sequence had all these things happening basically in limbo on a black background or a kind of a nondescript kind of grainy background. And I definitely wanted to bring in some of the kind of uh, diachromatic sort of uh, 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 print style title cr credits we saw in the 60s and 70s and like, uh, you know, we looked twice and, and even in um, Dr. No, you know, have these really strong, solid colors used as a sort of foundation. So I, I had, you know, Danny put those all across the backgrounds on the title sequence, which gave it a much more retro look. And um, those kind of things, I think, transferred both into uh, our philosophy too in the, in the, in the overall uh, palette of colors in, in the show. And that's not to say that any one sequence is like inundated with color. It's very specific which colors are gonna be the, the contrasting colors in that scene, but there is color playing. There's usually two dominant colors playing. Like if you take, for example, in um, the trawler, on the trawler, we have this very strong red light 
on this trawler. Which is real. They do on boats, like on ships, have that at night. They have some red, they usually have red colors in them. It's because they're developing photos. <laughs> yeah, on, no, on, but on they the, want to the see, <laughs> they want to be able to see better out in the, over the ocean. Without scaring the fish away. Yeah. But, uh, and then we have, we wanted to shoot, you know, uh, Linus doesn't like shooting night at night. He likes to shoot night when there's still a little bit of information in the sky. And so you sort of get this sort of midnight blue, uh, uh, last bit of illumination in the sky there, and that that very rich blue mixed with the red dominates almost that entire sequence. You only have you have one basically white, uh, neutral graded white light inside the 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 trawler, and then everything else is this red and blue, which is, is quite quite strong. Until we go to the the. Oh the bottom the engine room. Yeah, so when we did the aerial unit of the airplane as well, uh, um, instead of shooting night, you know, at black night, um, that whole Cuba sequence is actually sort of twilight, um, midnight blue, not having to do, you know, post-production uh, skies uh, on all of that, the, 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 the actual aerial photography of the approach to the, to the trawler and also the explosion of the trawler was shot, you know, over a couple of nights in order to catch um, the 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 sort of perfect twilight uh, minute. Yeah, we did that the same thing. Uh, there's a lot of sequences in Jamaica actually, where when they're on the scooter coming back from right. the bar or arriving at the house, we we try to time that so we get maybe three or four takes before there's no more light. You get that sky, and of course, if, if you shoot at sunset, you have a lot of colors in the sky, but you can kind of grade some of that out, but get still have that information coming from the sky with, without having to do digital sky replacement. It just looks better on camera. There's also some things that happen, you know, what, the way that lighting grids are now programmed on sets, you have a lot of power uh, really in, in, in your hands on, on little iPads essentially to change lights, change sort of um, how, which lights, you can program which lights are coming on and off. And I remember in the final sequence in the third act in the, um, on the island, one of the inspirations, you know, for the journey from Bond and Nomi, you know, into the the labyrinth, if you will, in the kind of these wet tunnels, was just driven by like Linus and his gaffer playing around with these lights, and we were seeing some lights go on and off, and it created this pattern. And they're like, "Oh, what if we, what if we do this like train-like thing on the tunnel?" Which wasn't part of the plan initially, but then we we started playing around with these lights, doing this this travel. to find the motivation for why it would shift, or why the light would come on and off, um, and and yeah, exactly felt like. What it felt like when we saw the programming on the on the desk uh, was that it felt a little bit like as if there was like a long shaft up, and there, there could be like train, like freight trains or something that were going around on the island. And you ended up doing that. like you see them actually in the wide shots of the island. You see some freight trains. But it, but initially, because our idea was the first iteration was between Mark Tildesley, the production designer, and Linus, we were looking at a lot of photographs and reference imagery that had to do with very graphic-shaped shadow work, that we could have Bond come in to light and then out of light into these basically hiding in open, but using very strong contrasting shadows to very strong contrast shadows in order to have him disappear. Right. So the set was built with the intention of having these sort of geometrically shaped 
lights uh, and shadows. Like slashes of light, yep. but because of the shape of the set and the shape of the where the light is coming from, it's almost impossible to, to understand where what the shape of these things were. It was, it was I'm trying to, I'm not, yeah. I'm not explaining it well. <laughs> yeah, you are. Wait. No, but, but we, had a, we had dozens of photographs. For were, Bond, yeah, lots of beautiful graphic photographs of, um, of black and white and that, uh, gave an opportunity for Bond to actually hide in the shadows. Because we wanted, we didn't want him, inevitably he does come in and shoot up a bunch of nondescript bad guys, but we didn't want to do that for an hour long, right? You know, we'll save that Each bit of action for the operation. end, so, so let's get him quietly into this place surreptitiously, and then we'll, we'll do all the bang-bang later. And um, um, so that was the sort of entry into this, this space. And uh, part of that was driven by architectural inspirations, treatment of light, et cetera, et cetera. But then, you know, the happy accident is we're in there playing with the lights, trying to see what different kind of shadows we get. And in playing with the lights, we got movement of light. And then that movement of light became the inspiration to have like these trams moving around. To a certain degree, it's such a long sequence with so much going on. It, it, what you describe actually makes sense because there is this element, there's a lot of story driving this, but breaking this up visually, pacing wise and, and 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 almost giving these within this longer sequence um different sequences to, to keep it pushing forward to a certain degree yeah yeah I'd be, I'd be curious like if we ever do a director's cut you know there's there's much more material in the in the that section in particular that plays with him you know much more in the shadows and and we, we shorten it a lot to keep yeah. the movie going but there's a couple more minutes in there of of fun sort of shadow shadow play I wanted to ask you guys about the opening, but I think you have to go, right, Jack? Is are we are we out of time? Uh, yeah, I think we are running low. All right. Anyways, Carrie and Liz, uh, congratulations on this movie, and uh, we should say that you you are both at uh, Camera Maj right now in Poland. Did you have a good time? Uh, we had a great time. Yeah, it was super fun. Yeah, we're we're recovering now from yeah. Camera Maj. Uh, almost lost my voice talking so much to a lot of uh, other cinematographers and filmmakers. It was really fun. Great festival. Well, congratulations both, and thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And just a reminder that today's podcast was brought to you by MGM Studios and United Artists Releasing's No Time to Die, produced by Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli, and directed by Carrie Fukunagua. Daniel Craig concludes his five-film portrayal of James Bond in No Time to Die. Joining forces with his MI6 team and a new generation of agents, Bond faces the highest stakes of his espionage career and emotionally explores the sacrifices of heroism. Critics are hailing No Time to Die will be remembered for its emotional impact above all. You can watch it everywhere you rent movies. It's for your consideration in all categories, including Best Picture of the Year.